All right, I asked Pastor Ben to do one song tonight, because Revelation 17, no pun intended, is a beast. It is, it is a lot, and it's not easy. It, it may be the hardest chapter in the book, which it's not an easy book. So um, lots of work for us to do tonight. I think I'm preaching for the first time at this church with a Slurpee on the platform with me. So it's serious tonight. Had to make that move. On August 24th, 410, the unthinkable happened. The Visigoths sacked the city of Rome. Nobody ever thought that this would be possible. Cities before Rome had fallen. Everybody should have known that it would happen sooner or later, but this is Rome we're talking about. This isn't, this isn't just uh, some ancient city from the past. This is the great Rome. Rome surpasses all. It had stood for eight centuries. To try to get some sense of how shocking this would have been for the world and for Roman people, just imagine a foreign power coming and sacking Washington, D.C. Imagine the movie Olympus has fallen being real. The early church father, Jerome, was so undone by the event, he cried out, if Rome be lost, where shall we look for help? Not Jerome's finest moment, right? The pagans, they mocked the Christians when Rome fell because they were like, hey, Rome just accepted Christianity as the national religion, which that's a far cry from where we're at in the first century in Revelation, but by 410, uh, they had accepted Christianity as the Roman religion, and right about the time they did it, well, Rome was sacked. And so the pagans, they were running around going, look what happens. You, you pledge your allegiance to this triune God, you'll get destroyed. And so in the midst of this, One of the giants of the Christian faith rose up with a response. When we think about church history, a lot of times we think about great preachers and theologians from Europe like Wycliffe and Tyndale and Knox and Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and all these guys, but Europe does not have a stronghold on theological influence. The two greatest theologians of the first 500 years of the church did not come from Europe. They came from Africa. One was Athanasius of Egypt. The other was the giant who rose up at Rome's demise and spoke with authority, and that was Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was an Algerian bishop, and he's probably the most influential thinker and philosopher and theologian of the first 1,500 years of the church. And in response to Rome's fall, he wrote the city of God. He wrote it to Christians, Roman Christian refugees, who were living in Africa, and they were weeping because they were like, oh no, Rome has fallen. Our plan has always been to get back to Rome somehow. And now that it's fallen, we have nowhere to go. We have no city. And so Augustine wrote them and said, of course you have a city. You don't belong to the city of man. You don't belong to Rome. You must turn your attention to the city of God. The city of man is Rome. But it's also every other city in the world. The city of man is every city built on the philosophies of man, the thoughts of man, the ways of man. The city of man is built on the love of self and the love of ego and the love of pleasure. The city of God is heaven. The city of God is the new Jerusalem that is to come. The bride of God will fill it. And that city is built not on the love of self, but on the love of God. 
And the full allegiance of every Christian is not to Rome or to Washington, D.C. or to any city on this earth. It is to the New Jerusalem. The plea for the Christian to understand the difference between the city of God and the city of man in Augustine was not original. It was an echo of what we see in Revelation 17 tonight. I've got to imagine I'm not the first preacher to use Augustine as his intro and outro for his Revelation 17 sermon. It's, it's kind of just hanging there. The, the, the fruit hangs low. As we arrive at Revelation 17, the fifth cycle has come to a close. There's seven cycles in the book of Revelation showing us redemptive history from these different perspectives. We saw in the fifth cycle the cycle of the bold judgments. And that showed us the end of history, how God will judge the world in the end. And now we come to the sixth cycle and we get another perspective. And this cycle will span Revelation 17 through 19. And what it's going to show us over the next few times we're together in Revelation is the fate of two cities. And it's also going to show us the fate of two women. On one hand, we have the city of Babylon. And Babylon is described as a woman who is a harlot. If you have your KJV with you tonight, the word is whore. On the other hand, we have the New Jerusalem. This city is adorned as a bride coming down out of heaven. And they could not be more different. The city of God and the city of man. Jerusalem and Babylon. And the question that hangs over the sixth cycle, that hangs over chapter 17 through 19, is are you going to stay faithful to God? Are you going to go with the world? Are you part of Babylon? Are you a part of the New Jerusalem? Are you a member of the body of the prostitute? Or are you a member of the body of the bride? And when the Lord returns, are you going to be in his number or will you perish with the counterfeit trinity of the dragon and his beast? And then this seductress that is the world and its idolatry and its philosophies. Just like with the seals and the trumpets, the epic battle between the dragon, the bowl judgments, God is using this picture of Babylon and the new Jerusalem to help us understand history, what we're seeing around us, what's going to happen in the end, and how things will be forever. It's a difficult passage Uh, tonight. It's hard because there's multiple verses where people throw their hands up and go, well, I think that's it, but I don't know. And that's always what you love when you open a a Bible commentary, right? (laughs) We think this is right, but we're not sure. Tonight's hard because every word seems to have some anchor in the Old Testament or in a previous verse in Revelation or a verse to come in Revelation. So I want to encourage you to stay engaged as we move throughout it. And, And God will be faithful as Ben has prayed for. He will give us sharp minds. He will give us soft hearts for this. And there'll be three teaching points for us as we go through. The city of man is identified in the first six verses. The city of man is strengthened in verses 6 through 14. And then we will see the beginning of the end as the city of man is destroyed. And so let's get into it. Revelation 17 verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So we have one of the angels from the bowl cycle showing John judgment. And his words to John are, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. 
So just, to, just so you can see, I'm not making up this whole idea of comparing the great prostitute to the bride of Christ. If you go to Revelation 21.9, the wording is almost, uh, it, it's a parallel almost to the T. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, not I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute, but I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So we got two women that we're contrasting, two women that we are comparing. An angel from the bowl cycle calls on John to come and see in both cases. You have the harlot, who we will look at in chapter 17 through 18, and then the bride, we really start looking at her in chapter 19, and we'll continue to all the way through the beginning of 21. The angel will show John the great prostitute. This is Babylon. We first met her in chapter 14. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's the same way the prostitute is described in verses 1 and 2, so we can be sure we're dealing with Babylon. In 17 verse 5, she's called Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes. So absolutely it's Babylon we're dealing with. You see in verse 2 that the kings of the earth are the clients of the prostitute. They, they are very expensive clients, right? A, a prostitute that is visited by the kings of the earth, well, this would be the highest of harlots. This would, this would be a luxurious harlot that costs a lot of money to go and see. She has expensive clientele. Also, the people who dwell on the earth are drunk on her sexual immorality. It's the same thing the angel proclaimed back in chapter 14. This term sexual immorality is not a literal term, but a figurative term. It, it does mean sexual immorality, but it's much bigger than that. It is referring to spiritual infidelity, where we're not faithful to God. The nations, the people of the earth that rebel against the Lord, they're spiritually unfaithful to the Creator. They have traded in a love and a worship of the Creator for a love and worship of created things. And in speaking of spiritual infidelity, like sexual immorality, here the angel talks like an Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah says, your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill, which is where the altars to the false gods are, and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. I mean, the language is strong from Jeremiah. And the language is strong from the angel in Revelation 17. It is a reminder to us that the depraved idolatry of humanity, it is no small offense before the Lord. It is spoken of beyond the terms of a wife stepping out on her husband with a lover. That's not the way that God talks about spiritual infidelity. It's worse. He talks about it like a wife stepping out on her husband to sell her body as a way to provide for herself so she wouldn't need anything from that man. And she could ignore him and all of his desires for her and all of his love and care for her. And to say, I am self-sufficient and I reject you and I reject your love. That is the sort of woman that God compares us to in our spiritual unfaithfulness and infidelity. You get an entire book of the Old Testament on this in Hosea. Hosea 1-2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, 
the Lord said to Hosea, how do you like this for a call to ministry? Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea, you're going to take for yourself a wife who is a harlot. And in that relationship, I will show Israel what they're doing to me. I will show Israel their spiritual infidelity. We shouldn't be surprised that God speaks of idolatry in these ways. He chooses sexual imagery not just because we can understand it, not just because that word whore causes us to recoil, because it tells us something about the nature of idolatry. If you give yourself long enough to it, sinful idolatry will ultimately express itself in some type of sexual sinful behavior. This is how it works with humans. Romans 1 tells us this. You trade in the creator for the created, it will not be long before you are trading natural desires for unnatural lusts. The great prostitute sits on many waters. We know what this means because in verse 15, the angel interprets it and says, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Meaning, Babylon, the prostitute, has dominion over the nations, over the people who dwell on the earth. They've bought in. They have bought into her wicked ways and her wicked philosophies, her rebellion against God. She has them under her spell. She has them drinking from her chalice of idolatrous sexual immorality. Verse 3, John says the Spirit carries him into the wilderness. There's a woman there. We saw a woman in the wilderness in chapter 12 also, but this is different. That was the church. That was the people of God hunted by Satan the dragon. But this is the harlot snuggled up to the dragon's beast. Here, the wilderness is meant to contrast with the high mountain that John is on when he sees the city of God in Revelation 21.10. So you remember we did the compare and contrast with 17.1 and 21.9? Well, compare 17.3 to 21.10. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So in the same way that we are to compare the great prostitute with the bride of Christ, we are comparing Babylon with the new Jerusalem. And the reason there's a wilderness, not a high mountain, as the background here in 17.3, is that it is a clue to us that, hey, when you see all this beauty here in a moment from this harlot, understand she's a harlot. Understand that there is no real sort of beauty there. Understand that this is not a paradise, and that when you look at this harlot, and when you look at the beast that she rides on, that they are in a barren wasteland. It is the first sign to us from the angel that any sort of attractiveness, any sort of allurement you would find in this woman and her beast, it's totally fake, it's totally counterfeit, don't fall for it, she's hanging out in a desert, she's hanging out in the wilderness. She's called the mother of prostitutes in verse 5, meaning this is the same great harlot from verses 1 and 2. She is seated on a scarlet beast that is full of blasphemous names that has seven heads and ten horns. If you go, well, that sounds familiar. It's because it's the same nasty beast who came up out of the sea in Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The reason the beast is red 
here in chapter 17 is because he reflects the color of the dragon whose image he bears. Revelation 12.3 said, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. The beast is in the image of the dragon. Because the beast is a counterfeit to Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the true invisible God. Jesus the Lamb saves his people. But the beast, he's in the image of the counterfeit dragon and he persecutes Jesus' people. Jesus actually gives safety and security. The beast promises safety and security, but the beast can't really give it to you. He's simply deceiving and doing the bidding of the dragon. And remember, the beast represents the Roman government in the immediate context of Revelation. They would have read this and go, oh yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the Roman Empire. That's the Caesar, that's the Roman government. But we understand that the beast is not just the Roman government, but any brutal government that would persecute the Lord's church during this time in between Jesus' ascension and then Jesus' return. The beast is the reminder to us that when the state governments start beating on us and beating on our brothers and sisters, we know who is behind it. We know it runs deeper than any sort of politics and any, any sort of globo, uh, glo- globo, global economical um, you know, reasoning. It, it, it's bigger than all of that, right? Behind it is, is the dragon and his beast. The seven heads shows the authority the beast has on the earth. It seems like it's total and complete. The ten horns demonstrate his power. Ten is the number of completion in the realm of humanity in the book of Revelation. The horn is a symbol of power in the ancient world. So there's complete power here on the earth for the beast. And is this not how it is? Everywhere we look, Right now, it seems like the world's being run by governments who don't have the best of intentions for people. They're just about power and and, and, and they're about uh, authority and, and remaining in control. And that is certainly the image we're getting here. The great prostitute sits on this beast. She is in purple and scarlet. The purple would be a sign of her riches because purple dye was hard to come by. Purple clothing was reserved for the wealthy and ruling classes. The scarlet is a sign of her occupation, right alongside the gold and the jewels and the pearls. She's dressing the part. I want you to listen to the words of Jeremiah as he describes Judah after being uh, desolated for her idolatrous immorality. God, God has her just run over by the Babylonians. And then he speaks of this, this judged, desolate land as a woman dressed like a prostitute. And listen to his language. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet? That you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold? That you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. Which is exactly what the uh, Babylon's lovers will be doing by the end of this passage tonight. You see that she's all dressed up, and you see that she has a golden cup as well to go with uh, all of her jewelry. This cup looks like it's extravagant and it's expensive on the outside, but inside it's full of abominations and the impurities of her idolatrous sexual immorality. Just as the beast is full of blasphemous names, she's full of abominations and impurities. 
And so here she is riding on the beast, and together they represent a full and total transgression of God's law at every point. They disgrace the name of God, and they transgress the commandments of God. That is what the beast and the harlot come together to do. She appears beautiful. She appears lovely. She appears to have riches. But in truth, she's a prostitute. She doesn't have any love to offer her clients. She just wants their money and the power that comes along with it. She gives out temporary pleasure, but she has no real charity to give to her customers. And that's what a harlot does. Now you get to verses 5 and 6, we find out for sure, just in case there's any doubt who she is, because on her forehead is written the name of mystery. And when you see mystery in the Bible, we shouldn't go, oh, that's something I can never know. Mystery means this is something you didn't know that is now being revealed to you. And so the, the identity of this woman is being fully revealed. She is Babylon the Great. And the fact that her name is on her forehead tells us something about her. Where was the name of the Father and the Lamb? On the foreheads of the saints. Where was the mark of the beast? On the forehead of the people who dwell on the earth who rebel against God. What's on your forehead in the book of Revelation says something about who you are. It says something about your identity. It says something about what you represent. So who is this? Who is Babylon the Great? Well, the dragon is Satan. The beast we've established in the immediate context of Revelation would be the Roman government. The false prophet, if you remember when we went through the second half of Revelation 13, we established in the immediate context of Revelation, it would be the Roman imperial cult who went around saying, you must bow to Caesar as Lord or we'll cut your head off. So who's Babylon? Well, we first meet Babel in Scripture in Genesis 11 when the people of the earth try to build a tower to heaven for their own name. They fail to heed the command to fill the earth and multiply. Instead, they try to build this tower up to heaven and not make a great name for God, but make a great name for themselves. It was God's plan to make a name for himself through them filling the earth and multiplying, not through them building a big tower. And so God scatters them. And so in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 11, Babel is a symbol of humanity's rebellion against God. The next time we really see Babylon again is during the time of exile, where God uses the nation of Babylon. He uses the, the people group of the Chaldeans. Uh, it's another name for the Babylonians. He uses them as a brutal tool of discipline in his hand against his people who had committed idolatry against them. He had warned them that this would happen if they would commit idolatry against him and not keep his commandments and rebel against him. And so in 586 BC, the Lord allows Judah to be carried off into exile, just like he allowed uh, to happen to the uh, northern kingdom of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians in 722. Judah goes into exile. But despite the fact that the Babylonians are a tool in the hand of God, they're not guiltless. They're still guilty of opposing God and opposing his people. He uses their evil as a part of his loving discipline, but they're still evil. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar boasts in Daniel 4 as he looks out over the kingdom and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
I mean, how idolatrous is that? And God humbles him. God makes him like a beast for it. And now, just as it was in the beginning of the Bible, and just as it is in the middle of the Bible, Babylon, at the end of the Bible, is a symbol of opposition toward God. And it's not hard for the first century reader to figure out who Babylon was. They would have read it, and they would have gone, that's Rome. Not the Roman Empire, not not, not the beast, not the government side of Rome, the cultural side, the city itself. The city of Rome that Jerome couldn't believe fell in 410 at the hands of the Visigoths. That city was the heartbeat of the empire. The philosophy, the culture, the arts, the entertainment, it all came out of Rome, and then it disseminated into the rest of the Roman Empire. When you get to verse 9, the woman is depicted on seven mountains, and Rome was known as the city built on seven hills. Clearly, we're dealing with the city of Rome. You say, well, why would Rome be thought of as a whore? As the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations? Well, because it was disgusting, that's why. It was absolutely depraved and packed with offensive and horrid sin before God. From the outside, it was regal. It was the most important city on the earth. If you just rode by it on your horse, you would say, oh my goodness, this is the pinnacle of human achievement, this Rome. But if you actually went into its streets and you looked under its fingernails, you would find people were having sex with children and it was accepted. Women were treated as nothing. If a man's wife was raped, the man had the legal choice of raping the rapist and then he would kill his wife. And she had absolutely no say in any of it, even though she was the true victim because she had no value in that culture and in that city. The value of a man was wrapped up in who he could take and what he could do to them. The ownership of people, the domination of people, that's how you measured the power of a Roman man. And so that's the great Rome in reality. But just like the, the beast represents the Roman Empire, but also represents all of these uh, brutal, oppressive governments during the church age, Babylon is Rome, but she's more than that. She's every city that is lauded by humanity as a center for culture and commerce and human achievement. She's New York. She's Paris. She's London. She's Tokyo. She's Norfolk. Go look under the hood of every one of these cities. From the outside, you'll see it, and you'll go, look at the lights. Look at the design. Look at the cool buildings. Look at the music. Look at the culture. Look at the people. It's all so beautiful. But spend a little time in those cities, and you will find the underbelly of sin is there, and there's little shame for it. The philosophies that emerge from these cities are heralded as the morality we all need to live by. If only the suburbs in the rural parts of the world could catch up, right? And yet, those morality, that morality, those teachings, those philosophies, they're warping the world. The world is drunk on the abominations and impurities that the harlot keeps in her cup. So just as the beast represents the Roman Empire, Babylon represents the city of Rome and every other city of man that opposes God. It represents the entire rebellious network of humanity. This isn't me saying, hey, listen, we should hate cities and we should all move to the suburbs. Okay? I grew up in the country. I lived in the city 
for my whole like educational time in the beginning of my marriage, and then we moved here, which is about as suburban as it gets. I've lived in all of them, and guess what? There's horrible sinners in every single one of them. <laughs> go out into the country, there are reputable sinners. Go into the suburbs, there are reputable sinners. And go into the city, there's reputable sinners. It's just that when you get a city together, it compacts. The more people you get together, the more sin you get together. The more sin you get together, the more depravity shows itself off. And so, yeah, when you go into the cities where we've gathered together, you will see our sin has also gathered together. Augustine said, The earthly city has made for herself, according to her heart's desire, false gods out of any sources at all, even out of human beings, so that she might adore them with sacrifices. Go into the cities and you will find people just making sacrifice after sacrifice to false gods. Great cities produce great levels of influence and culture. So strong that even the rulers of the earth are held in dominion by them. And we see that's the case in verse 18. How many rulers around the world look to the cities and go, I've got to do what the people there want me to do? I have to follow the ideas that are coming out of those cities. They're held in the sway of Babylon. This is still happening all around us. On June 6th, an Anglican sister in India who was a professor at the university in Lahore, which is the second largest uh, city, I'm sorry, not India, uh, Pakistan, second largest city in Pakistan, she was abducted, she was raped by four Muslim men, and they doused her body in acid. The police reported this as being the fault of our sister in Christ. They cooked up a story to the media where she tried to have an affair with this man and then blackmail him until him and his friends were pushed to the point of murder. They couldn't help themselves. And the Anglican church in Pakistan said, I don't think so. And they hired an independent investigative team who went in, conducted their own investigation, turned over the truth and said, no, they raped and murdered this woman. Rome is Babylon. Lahore is Babylon. Wherever you find the brutal philosophies of man ruling the hearts of people and causing them to turn violently on the church, well, that's Babylon. By the way, tonight, look up a picture of Lahore, Pakistan. She is beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful cities aesthetically I have ever seen. But inside, she is ruled by the brutal, depraved concepts of militant Hinduism. She is drunk on the blood of the saints. And she adores false gods with sacrifices. You say, well, I want to see Lahore judged. I want this Babylon judged. I want the city of man judged. Hold on, not yet. Before she is destroyed, she gets stronger. John marvels at this. He marvels at her greatly in verse 6. Marvels at her triumph. Marvels at her power. Marvels at how she just brashly is walking around drinking the blood of God's people as if he's not going to do anything about it. John has seen who this God is. Keep in mind, right? He's been to the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5. He has seen the lamb who is slain but standing. He knows this God is powerful. He's already seen five of the seven cycles. He knows what the end of the world is going to be like and what judgment will be like. And I think he's in awe because he's going, how can you be so brash? Right? It's like when you were a kid and there was that one kid in class who just didn't care about the rules. And they're just like going around the class. They're cussing. They're throwing the racers around. They're out of control. And you're like, how do you live like that? No fear of the teacher. No fear of the principal. What's going on here? Right? I think that's John here. He's like, what, what is this? 
It's like he, he don't want to see it, but he can't look away from it. I think the world's like that sometimes. We, we just go, man, it's so crazy and awful, it's mesmerizing. The angel speaks again in verse 7 and asks John why he marvels. And the reason he asks him that is he's going to unpack this. He's like, don't marvel. I'm going to expose to you what this is. I'll show you how, how she gets stronger, and then I'll show you what's going to happen to her in the end. And so, verse 8, beginning for of the hardest verses in Revelation, the angel says that this beast who the woman sits on was and is not. Was and is not, and yet is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Was and is not, and yet is. Then at the end of the verse, similar language. The beast was and is not, and is to come. A lot of Bible commentators have done a lot of typing on this over the years. Most of that ink has been spent trying to do the math to see if somehow this is the Emperor Nero, the Roman Emperor Nero. I tend to think that this is much more general and that the angel is just speaking of the Roman Empire as a whole and not a specific emperor. Because the Roman Empire, like other empires, like the one you and I live in, goes through periods of prosperity and adversity. There's times when it's thriving. And then there's times where it's sputtering and you're going, is this it? Is this going to be the end of the empire? And then some charismatic leader comes along and everybody is unified. And then there's an economic boom and maybe there's a, a, a foreign political alliance that, that comes about. And life is breathed into the empire again. And that causes the people of the earth to marvel at the beast. They go, look at how it just resurrects. I mean, we had a housing crisis. The, the, the bubble burst in 2008. But here we are just ticking along in 2017. Ten years ago, it's nothing. We're back, baby. And so the people of the earth marvel at this. They think, ah, just when we thought the government was down and out, they're back. Our, our comfort, our security, and our safety, it's back. But it's a counterfeit. Who really died and rose again? The Lord Jesus Christ and he defeated death, and he crushed the empire of darkness that comes along with it, and he's going to cut the head off of Satan in the end. It's as good as done with the work of the cross and the resurrection. And the beastly empires of this world can only mimic his power. They can't recreate it. But those who dwell on the earth, whose names are absent from the book of life, from the foundation of the world, they stand marveling at the beast. They fall for the counterfeit. You know, the same Greek word is used in verse 6 and verse 8, but I think John's marveling and the earth dwellers marveling is very different. John can't look away even though he may want to. The earth dwellers, they wouldn't dare to look away because the beast is their hope. If verse 8 is trigonometry, 9 through 11 are straight calculus. I'm going to the Slurpee. John says, or I should say the angel says, calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was not and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seventh. And it goes to destruction. Much like at the end of chapter 13, John tells us we need to use wisdom, and that's because he's going to use numbers to make his point. The end of chapter 13, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. And then after that, he gives us the, the number of the beast. 
Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. This time, we don't have 666, we have seven heads, which are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, seven kings, five of whom have fallen, the sixth reigns now, the seventh hasn't come, when he does, he won't be there for long, the eighth king is the beast himself who belongs to the seventh. Let's just go on to verse 12, I'm, I kid. So, I wish. Uh, no, so, so here's where, where I land. John says the seven heads of the beast are the seven mountains the woman sits on. Rome was the, known as the city built on seven hills or seven mountains. So clearly, again, Rome is Babylon. The city of Rome is Babylon. The beast is the Roman Empire, the state government. It makes sense that she would sit on the beast, right? Rome sits in the empire as, as the star of the empire, the one who's kind of controlling the messaging of the empire and, and, and trying to get everybody around the world to buy in. The business about the seven heads, also being the seven kings, is where things get a bit more difficult. Five kings have already fallen. One rules now. He will fall. There will be another who rules for a short amount of time. Then there's this eighth ruler who is the beast, but he belongs to the seventh, yet all the heads are a part of him. It seems confusing. Add in the fact that the beast is not, and yet the beast is still ruling through the sixth king, so it kind of seems like he is. The beast is, and yet in a sense he's not because he's still to come in the seventh king. Interpreters, again, have spilt a ton of ink over this. Many have taken the Roman emperors from Julius Caesar to Nero. And they've tried to see if maybe John's speaking about political leaders here with these seven head kings. But the math doesn't work. You've got to leave out emperors to try to make it work. Which emperors do you leave out? How do you even make that choice? So that doesn't work out. Others tried to add up all the empires that caused God's people suffering throughout the ages. So they took the seven, with the eighth being the beast, and they said, well, it's the Assyrians and the Medes and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Grecians and Old Rome and New Rome, whatever that means, and the Antichrist. But you've got to leave out Egypt if you do that. Egypt kind of feels like an important enemy. Say, so, all right, well, let's put Egypt in before Assyria. Well, if you do that, you displace Rome in the order. Some have tried to add Assyria in, combine the Medes and the Persians, then you end up with Rome as the sixth. It's unclear then how it would also be the eighth that belongs to the seventh. Are you confused yet? Me too. And that's why I don't think John meant any of that. Again, I think where we can be general, we should be general. And I think that he's just giving us a rough sketch of human history. Throughout history, awful, uh, powerful, savage empires have risen up. They have opposed the people of God. They have opposed the principles of God. And that's what's being communicated here. Throughout Revelation, the church age is communicated to us as a very brief amount of time, right? 42 months, 1260 days. That's how it's described in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Three and a half years later on in chapter 11. 1260 days in 12 verse 6. A time, times, and half a time in 1214. 42 months in 13.5. All ways to describe this brief period of, of witness and period of uh, suffering for the church. Well, when you go to 17 verse 10, it says, There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. 
I think a little while is indicating to us we're talking about the church age. We're talking about a brief period of suffering and witness. And if that's the case, then the Roman Empire represents the sixth king. It is as Revelation is being written, but it's going to fall soon because no empire of man lasts forever. But when it falls, don't get too excited. There's a seventh king. During the age of the church, there's always going to be another king. Another king will always rise up that has allegiance to the beast and to Babylon and will seek to stop the work that we do. The state that persecutes the church in the time between Rome and Jesus' return, this is the seventh king. Another way to speak about the beast. It's only going to last a little while. Then we have an eighth king emerging that belongs to the seventh. It's described as the beast that was and is not. And I take that to be a description of the final movement of the Antichrist. That that's whatever horrible empire or nation state that the man of lawlessness is going to. To lead. William Hendrickson says the beast that was and is not is the eighth and final most terrible dominion of Antichrist toward the close of history. And so that's how I understand the seven head kings. A rough sketch of history it tells us about the past, it tells us about how things are as Revelation is written, how things will be in the church age, and then ultimately how things will be in the end when the final Antichrist rises up. I'll move to verse 12. I just want to say, don't be dogmatic about this interpretation. If you hear somebody else say something different, don't say, well, my pastor said. I don't care if you're a premillennialist, dispensationalist, amillennialist, postmillennialist, preterist, futurist, whatever you land on Revelation. These are hard verses, and there is struggle and ambiguity in them, and there are a lot of really smart men and women throughout the last 2,000 years who have read it and gone, I think it means this, but I'm not sure. And that's a pretty good place for us to land as well. So don't throw hands over Revelation 17, 9-11 ever. That is my recommendation to you. Interpret it, seek to understand it, but don't be mad about it. After explaining... The seven heads, the angel moves on to interpret the ten horns. He says these are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So unlike the seven head kings, the horn kings, they don't have all their power yet. They're going to get it in the future. And they will receive it for one hour together with the beast. Which I think is referring to a brief time before final judgment. The Ten kings remind us of the ten horns that represent ten kings in Daniel 7. Daniel 7.24, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. In Revelation, these ten horn kings probably would make the reader think of the nations around Rome. Nations that would have longed to align with Rome in order to consolidate power, in order to be a part of the empire. The number 10 is important because, again, it refers to completion in the realm of humanity. So these kings represent a future, complete, global power, which is always the desire of a totalitarian nation-state, right? They always just want all the power. This is no different. It's Babel all over again. Instead of expanding up, the beast looks to expand out. 
by sharing power with these kings. The goal is world domination. The arts, industry, education, government, commerce, all of it. Satan and his beasts will be like hungry hippos in the end, gobbling up all they can in their final meal before they are slaughtered by the judgment of the Lord. These kings are too eager to, they, they want to be a part of it. They, they won't be able to wait. They'll jump right in, happy to join in on the cause of making war on the Lamb and the church. That's what they have done all throughout history, and they will do it in the end, and they will just ramp up their violence and aggression. But the victory of the church and the victory of Christ is not in question. The beast carries Babylon in the wilderness. Its head kings and horn kings all gather up for battle. They persecute the church. They're going to oppose the rule of Christ. The dragon is behind all of it. But we know what's going to happen. The lamb will conquer them. You see this in verse 14. It is decreed as if it is done. And what is implied is that those who are with the Lamb, the chosen, the called, the faithful ones, who have been persecuted, who have been murdered by the dragon and Babylon and the beasts, they will conquer with Him. That is the picture we get in Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. I think those are, that's, that's the horn kings. That's the ten horn kings. Here they are, with the beast, all gathered up. We're going to fight the lamb, we're going to fight the church doesn't last long. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, that's the Antichrist, who in its present, presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's a terrible meal. That is a terrible meal. The enemies of God being eaten by birds of death, ravens and vultures. And they're too fat to fly away after the meal because they have gorged themselves in the flesh of God's enemies. But that is preceded by a different meal. A beautiful meal. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We continue to have the contrast between the bride and the harlot. The contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. It is the called and the chosen and the faithful whose names are written in the book of life. They will come to that table and you will know them in this world because they are the ones who suffer in the wilderness. They are the ones who refuse to go into the city of Babylon, who refuse to snuggle up to the beast. Let's go to the end here and wrap it up for tonight. I know that we're right at 7.30. Verses 15 through 17 is where the destruction of Babylon really begins. Chapter 18 is going to explain it all in great detail, but we get the beginning of the end of the story here in 17. Verse 15 explains what we already know. Babylon, the evil world system of man, on full displays in her cities of grandeur throughout the world, she holds dominion over the people who dwell on the earth. 
They have fallen prey to her idolatrous ways. They've gone along with her. You know, many people wonder, how have we gotten to where we're at in the United States of America today? How have we gotten to this place where we don't know what a man or a woman is? How have we gotten to a place where, like, if you're in an academic setting and you bring up the idea that the first cause of everything is a divine being who created you, you will be laughed at. But if you have a theory about aliens being the origin of life, professors are all ears. How have we gotten to a place where our concern for saving trees and glaciers, which I'm not against spending money on saving some trees and glaciers here and there, but how have we gotten to a point where that is what we talk about more than the opioid crisis that's killing our children or the abortion mills that are killing our children? How can we run around shouting about justice at award shows and yet our celebrities are silent about the trafficking of children? The answer is Babylon. That's how we got here. Like fallen empires before us, we got into bed with the whore and we drank from her cup. We have imbibed her idolatrous liquor and now we're drowning in the sexual immorality with no signs of a lifeboat. But she will not remain forever. Far from it. In fact, the very kings, the very kings that the beast shared power with will turn on Babylon. They will strip her down to nothing. Before they ran to her, they needed her ideas. They do whatever she said. They cozied up next to her. But now they strip her down to nothing and they burn her with fire. And in doing this, they're actually carrying out the purposes of God. And isn't that a reverse? Remember God used the Babylonians to discipline his people? Well, now he uses these kings to judge Babylon. This is a reference to how humanity will destroy itself in the end. Culture, economy, infrastructure, we will rip it all apart with our own hatred and violence. And you can see that here. You can see that part of God's judgment on sinful humanity is put in the hearts of the kings and the beasts to destroy Babylon in order to fulfill God's words. God is ruling over humanity. As Ben said earlier, writing history from the front, writing history from the beginning, and he will see every detail of this plan come to fruition. Even the actions of evil kings are not outside of his governing hand. If it happens, he's caused it or he's allowed it. And in his sovereign wisdom, he has planned for the woman riding on the beast to be destroyed by him and his kings in the end. This dominion that she enjoys in verse 18, it will be no more. And that's just the start of her destruction. We'll see the rest in chapter 18. Closing up tonight, church, seeing what becomes of Babylon, seeing how she goes from powerful to pitiful, should be a warning to us to reject her now. Don't, don't align with her as the beast does. Don't align with her as the kings of the earth do and as the kings of the earth will and as those who dwell in the earth do. We don't marvel at her as if she deserves adoration and glory. We marvel in apprehensive disgust. Revelation 17 should be a clear call on you to leave Babylon behind. When we get into 18, you'll, a voice from heaven will say, come out from her. We, we must reject the philosophies and the principles coming out of Babylon, coming out of the great cities of the world. And we have to recognize that we don't have a city in this world. We have no citizenship in Babylon's walls. 
Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So wait on your city and reject the world city. She will meet her demise. Your city is the new Jerusalem, and it will come down from heaven adorned like a bride. And you will be invited to the Lamb's supper table. And you will be his people, and he will be your God forever. Don't go with the world. It's not easy. The world has made her choice. She will sacrifice her time at the altar of her smartphone. She will sacrifice her purity at the altar of pornography. She will sacrifice her children at the altar of convenience. She will sacrifice her gender and identity on the altar of modern sexual ethics. She will sacrifice her work on the altar of power and promotion. The world sacrifices her heart on the altar of Babylon the harlot, giving itself over to the beast that she rides on and the dragon whose image he comes forth in. What will be your choice? Our brother Paul has told us what it must look like. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't bow down and offer sacrifices to the false gods and the counterfeits that Babylon is deceiving the world with. Offer your life up as a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. Don't be conformed by Babylon. Do not be conformed by this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Reject the city of man as a citizen of the city of God and do it all the way to the end of your life. At the very end of Augustine's life, he was losing his eyesight and he was lying in his bed dying and he couldn't read the scriptures anymore. And so this man, who was a citizen of the city of God, all the way to the end of his life, was resolved that his mind would not be warped by the philosophies of Babylon. And he had his students come in and paint the Psalms on the walls and the ceilings in large enough letters for him to be able to lay in his deathbed and read. And that is what we must be like. All the way to the end, resolved. We are the Lord's and we belong to the city of God. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us tonight and helping us understand your word, Father. I hope I've done justice to it. Though there are parts of your word that aren't as clear as uh, my brother Sully said to me when we were together earlier today, I think that you've left some parts unclear so the Holy Spirit could just have full reign to make us submit and rely on him as the interpreter, rely on him as the one who can help us understand. Because we can't understand this without you, Lord. We need you to understand. And even then, Lord, we recognize that we see through a mirror dimly and our interpretations may fall short, Lord. But I pray that the, the meat of this message would not fall short. That, that we, wouldn't, we wouldn't forget that. The principle stands no matter what. We have to reject Babylon. Don't let us get into bed with her. As your people... Keep us discerning in our eyes to recognize her for what she is, to see past the makeup, to see past the jewelry, the earrings, the golden cup, scarlet and purple clothing, and to know that's a prostitute and there is no love there. There is nothing but temporary pleasure and then shame and disgust. Lord, 
I pray that we would reject the counterfeit and we would find true joy in the worship of you as living sacrifices each and every day. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.